This past summer, Jeff and I had the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon. We had a conference in Arizona, and what else do you do when you have to go down to Arizona but take a train, hang out in Colorado for a couple days, and then swing through the Grand Canyon? The train really is an excellent way to travel. It's quite fun. Our kids loved it. But we went to the Grand Canyon, and I had never been, our kids had never been, and we were really excited because all we heard about from people is it's how awesome it is, and pictures don't do it justice. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, yeah. How many of you that have not been have heard that, like, pictures don't do it justice? Yeah, like a lot of people, yeah. Like, pictures don't do it justice. It's incredible. It's magnificent. All these things. So we went... And we were so excited. And you guys, it was, pictures don't do it justice. No, just kidding. It was, like, awesome. It was crazy. It's huge. Like, you can't describe it. It's, it's, it's magnificent. It's incredible. And we found that we're standing there at the edge of all this beautiful expanse that God has created that goes on for forever. And we were terrified because we had a three-year-old and a five-year-old who all they wanted to do was run around. And we were in an area without a railing, and it was terrifying. And my three-year-old saying, I've got this, didn't help. So they were not in danger. They were far enough away from the edge. But man, Jeff and I found like we we're at this incredible place, this place that everyone says you have to visit. Everyone says you have to stop and just realize how big God is, how cool this place is, and we could hardly enjoy the beauty because we were terrified. Maybe you relate to this, maybe not because you have kids running around, but maybe you're afraid of heights. And so like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon is like, this is incredible, but I can't get over the fact that I'm about to have a heart attack. Yeah, I see one or two people nodding along. Like this, this idea of like, this is undescribable. And yet, all I can focus on is how terrified I am. We've been in a series talking about how great God is and how powerful and how all-present and infinitely good and infinite. And I think sometimes we're met with this same feeling. You can't talk about how big God is without like some crazy moments of what do I do with this? And so I think we at times come face to face with God and with his glory and who he is, and we're terrified. Because all we can see is ourselves, and we feel like we're hovering on the edge of his magnitude, and we don't know where that leaves us or what that means for us. Maybe it's, how can a God this big care for me? Maybe it's a feeling of, like, how can a God that big have all the power and be infinite, and that's just like a scary thought. But we're left with this question of like, where, where does this leave us? What does this mean for us? And maybe you relate to that. Tonight, we're going to continue the series, and we're going to talk about God's glory. God's glory. And I want you to think about, just to yourself, how would you define God's glory. Maybe it's his power. Maybe his magnitude. Maybe this question just makes you squirm. Maybe it makes you excited. Maybe it makes you feel all sorts of different things. Um, but we're going to dig into 
what the Bible says about his glory. We're going to read from Exodus 33. It's the story of Moses, but I'm going to give you a bit of background to this story. So Moses, he's really well known for God using him to set the Israelites free. The Israelites had been in captivity for 400 years to the Egyptians. God uses Moses to do some pretty incredible things. We see the ten plagues. We see the sea parting. We see pillars of cloud, pillars of fire. If none of this is familiar, you should just go read the story and then like talk to us about all the questions you have because there's some crazy stuff here. Talk about the glory of God and the magnitude of it all. But after all this, the people are set free and they're in the wilderness, specifically outside Mount Sinai. And so Moses has gone to the top of the mountain, and God's presence has descended, which the people see in clouds and smoke and like, man, you can't get anywhere near this thing. And Moses is there getting the Ten Commandments, which we see in Exodus 20. But the people start to get antsy. They start to get anxious. They start to get fearful. They're literally on the edge of God hovering over Mount Sinai, and they are terrified. And they start saying to Aaron, who is Moses' brother, what have you done? Where is Moses? Moses has disappeared. We should have gone back. We'd be better off as slaves. Like, you know you've lost it when you start saying we'd be better off there as slaves because at least we had food. Like, their lives were miserable. So they're here and they're terrified. And Aaron says, okay, take off all your gold, take off all your ornaments. And he makes a golden calf. He makes an idol and says, this is your God now. And so as you can imagine, God wasn't very happy about this. Moses wasn't very happy about it. This is where we're kind of picking up, where God has just said to Moses, essentially, I promised you, I promised the people the promised land, so I'm still going to fulfill my promise. You can go to the promised land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going with you because you're a stiff-necked people, and I would probably destroy you all if I went with you. So I'm going to stay here on the mountain and you go to the promised land. And this is where we're going to pick up. So Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 12. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord, oh, I'm sorry, that is verse 7, so we're going to skip down a little bit to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. I love that. Him reminding God, remember this, peop- this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. I love this story so much. And we see in verse 18, Moses says, show me your glory. What a beautiful request. Moses isn't just asking God to do the impossible. He's asking God to lead instead of him. What would change in our lives if this was a regular prayer that we prayed? If we regularly said to God, show me your glory. And something for us to think about, Moses knew God. They had one of the most intimate relationships that we see between God and man. Like you read the story of their relationship and it is almost unmatched in the Bible. And yet Moses wants to see God's glory. He's not terrified. Or if he is, he knows that seeing God's glory will be worth it and worth everything. And even more than that, we see in verse 15 Moses would rather stay with God and his glory in the wilderness than go to the promised land without him. Think about that. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. We don't know a ton about the wilderness, but we do know in the wilderness, God had to send food from heaven because there wasn't food to feed the people. The wilderness, when we see this in the Bible, is it's not just a physical place. It's also like this spiritual place, this hard place, this testing place. And yet Moses says he would rather be with God in the wilderness than in the promised land without him. He wanted God's glory more than he wanted God's promises. How good must God's glory be for Moses to want this? And as we continue on, we see that God shows him his glory. So Moses asks, show me your glory. And God responds in verse 19, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. When we think of God's glory, we think of his power or his might or his magnitude. But here, God defines his glory as his goodness. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And if that's not enough, he continues to talk about mercy and compassion. We see in the following chapter, right after God reveals himself to Moses, Exodus 34, 4 through 7. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning. As the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger 
abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is God. And yes, we see the reality in verse 7 of sin being passed down generation to generation. And we see this as a reality. What we do, what our parents have done affects us and it continues generally less and less throughout the generations. But even this, this line isn't in here. Notice how it's at the end. Commentators find it interesting that this is like added on the end, like just like a tag on. But this isn't here to point out the punishment. It's to show the mercy. Because while the sin goes down three or four generations, God's love is maintained for thousands of generations. God is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. Do you mind putting that verse back up there? This is the definition of who God is. And this is not just like, this is how God describes himself, this passage here. Exodus 33, 4 through 6. If we can go back to that passage. This is how God describes himself. When Moses says, show me your glory, this is how God describes himself. And not only this, but Jewish tradition, Jewish people in the Old Testament view this as a description of who God was. We see this passage referenced over and over and over in the Old Testament. This is the standard. This is God revealing himself. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And this term abounding in love and faithfulness, you don't see it in the English, but if you look at the original Hebrew, this is covenant language. This is God declaring this covenant relationship with his people, which we see that while they fail over and over and over again, his love continues over and over and over again. And we even see back in chapter 33 this mercy, compassion and mercy. And I want to talk really quickly about God's mercy. There's so many different elements we could talk about here. And if you want to look into any of these elements, the Bible Project online does a really cool breakdown of some of this stuff. So you can go look in that if you want more details. But I want to look at God's mercy. Jeff talked about this last week. God is infinite. I don't know what you think about when you think of the word infinite, but I kind of think of like when you're a kid and you're trying to one-up people and it's like, well, I plus 100 or I plus 1,000, well, I plus infinity. And then the ultimate one, I infinity plus one, which is impossible because infinity is infinity. But, you know, like as a kid, like Juliet and I get into that sometimes. But God is infinite, infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is limitless. What a crazy concept to wrap our minds around. We can't even fully wrap our minds around that because we are not infinite. We are very finite. We have a beginning. We have an end. And here we are somewhere in the middle. But God is infinite. And referencing the book Knowledge of the Holy, a great book looking at the attributes of God, his attributes are infinite. 
God and his attributes are infinite. Because if God is infinite and God is self-sufficient and self-existent, he can never improve. He can never get worse because to improve or get worse would mean that he's not infinite and self-existent and all of this, self-sufficient. Which means that his attributes don't change and they are without limit. So God's love is limitless. His compassion is limitless. His mercy is limitless. Our sins may be huge, but there's a limit. Whatever you feel like you've done or the people around you have done, you could do all this awful stuff, but what you do, your actions have a limit. But God's mercy is limitless. We cannot exceed. It is impossible for us to exceed his mercy. What a crazy, (laughs) unbelievable concept. And this is what God chooses to show Moses when Moses says, show me your glory. I want to circle back to Moses. Where is Moses in all this? If we look back at chapter 33, I'm just going to read that end part one more time. 33 chap- verse, chapter 33, verse 21 and 20 to th- 23. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. During all of this, God places Moses in the cleft of the rock and shelters him with his hand. We see before those verses I read that you cannot see the face of God. And so God puts him in the cleft. Even as he's about to show his glory, he knows what Moses can and cannot handle. And he puts him in a secure place in the cleft of the rock. For us, when we're faced with the glory and magnitude of God, we're not like kids running around like crazy at the Grand Canyon. We're like Moses. God puts us in the cleft of the rock and says, watch my glory pass by. When we're face to face with God, who he is and his glory, we're secure in the cleft of the rock. In fact, it's because of his glory that we're secure. It's because of his glory and goodness that he places us in the cleft of the rock. His infinite glory his infinite goodness. He places us securely in the cleft of the rock. Or to use other analogies that we see in the Bible, he protects us under his wing or we're in the shelter of the Almighty. Psalm 91.4 says, He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Psalm 37, 1 says, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. Unfailing love, again, there's that covenant language. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. 
Psalm 121, 5 through 6. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. And then back to Psalm 91, verses 1 through 2. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It is God's glory and goodness that compels him to protect us. Though compelled isn't even the right word, because if God is infinite and God is self-sufficient, his goodness and glory aren't an outside force that compels him to do anything. Nothing compels him because he, he's self-sufficient, he's self-existent. We could really talk ourselves in circles here. But no outside force compels him to do anything or to act a certain way. Rather, it is who he is. And he wouldn't do it differently. Remember, we talked about two weeks ago, he created us. You are his creation. He loves us. He loves you. And he knows you like only a creator can know they're created. It is out of his glory and goodness that we are secure. God is glorious, which means I am secure. But I want to circle back to this idea of face-to-face. -face. It's come up a couple times. I don't know if you've noticed. But we've talked about this idea of being face-to-face -face with God. But the fact that we can be face-to-face -face with God is incredible. Because in the Old Testament, we read it tonight, People cannot see the face of God. Moses couldn't even see the face of God or he would die. When we see the Bible talking about Moses talking face to face with God, it's, it's an idiom to describe the intimacy of the relationship. Because the Bible is very clear, we cannot see his face. Even when Moses is in the cleft of the rock, he only sees God's back. But all of this changed. Because in John 1.14 we see, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus came as the glory of God and for the first time ever, the world saw his face. The world saw his face. In verse 15, we say, we have seen his glory. In the words full of grace and truth, if you want to put that verse back, um, John 1 back up on the screen for me. These words full of grace and truth, they're a callback, they're a direct callback to Exodus 33. And so many times in the New Testament, we see specific authors calling back to Exodus 33. And we don't know because we, we, don't, we don't understand all the original language. But the original audience would have known that this was a callback. John is saying in no uncertain terms that Jesus is God. Jesus is the glory of God incarnate. He says we have seen his glory. For the first time, the world saw what Moses couldn't see. They saw the face of God in Jesus. 
for the first time, humanity could truly be face-to-face with God. And this changed everything. Moses came down the mountain, and his face was radiant so that he had to wear a veil. You can read about it at the end of chapter 34. The people couldn't even look at his face. His face was radiant and glowing from seeing God. People met Jesus in the New Testament, and their lives were changed. The woman at the well, the disciples, Lazarus, the blind man, Mary, Martha, it is over and over and over again, people meeting Jesus, and their lives were changed. We meet God, and we meet Jesus, and everything changes. I want to read a quote from a book, Gentle and Lowly, by Dan Ortland. It says, the Lord passed by Moses and revealed that his deepest glory is seen in his mercy and grace. Jesus came to do in flesh and blood what God had done only in wind and voice in the Old Testament. I believe we have this quote on the screen. I believe we have it in the slides. I could be wrong. It should be near the end. When we see the Lord revealing his truest character to Moses in Exodus 34, we are seeing the shadow that will one day yield the shadow caster, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels. We are being given a 2D, given in 2D, what will explode into our own space and time continuum in 3D centuries later at the height of all the human history. We are being told of God's deepest heart in Exodus 34, but we are shown that heart in the Galilean carpenter who testified that this was his heart throughout his life and then proved it when he went to a Roman cross. I want to read that one line, that last line, one more time. We are being told of God's deepest heart in Exodus 34, but we are shown that heart in the Galilean carpenter who testified that this was his heart throughout his life and then proved it when he went to a Roman cross. When we start to see who God truly is and when we start to draw close to God, we start to value his glory over his promises, over his promised land. We start to realize his glory and his goodness. Jeff, if you want to up. We start to realize his glory and his goodness, his loving kindness to us. We start to see that God isn't a distant God only displaying his glory for us to see at a distance. But instead we see that he's close, that he longs to show us his glory in a personal and intimate way, that he came, God incarnate, to this earth to live among men and women to show us his face. And as we see this and slowly start to open up, we start to become secure. Secure in who he is and our relationship to him. Secure with him as he is in his infinite mercy and his infinite love. We know where we stand because he places us in the cleft of the rock in the shadow of his wings. He puts his hand over us. He covers us. 
and we no longer move forward in fear, but in glory. His glory leading us gently. God, show us your glory. God is glorious, which means I am secure. This is a process, but it's one God wants to start with you if you're willing. I'm going to ask if you feel comfortable to just close your eyes. Let it be you and God. And I, I want you to know that because of his infinite goodness, he will never force you on a journey that you're not ready to take. He will never force you on a journey that you're not ready to take. But he is inviting you. He's inviting you onto this journey. He's inviting you to see his glory. He's inviting you to see him face to face. He's inviting you under his wings. And I want to give us an opportunity to respond. We're going to close just with a time to reflect as Jeff plays some music for us. But I want to give you guys a chance to respond, and I want an opportunity to pray for you. Um, so I, I have two things. Maybe you've never responded to God before, or it's been a really, really long time, but maybe tonight you want to. Maybe you want to start this journey with him and you want him to lead you. He, you want him to lead your life. You want to see your glory and know God face to face. I believe that Jesus wants to come meet you here tonight. Um, and if, if that's you, if you like, would like that, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you tonight? Thank you. And maybe on the other side, maybe you know Jesus is here. You've known he's been here for a while. But maybe you just want more of God. And you want to see more of his glory in your life. You want to experience this fresh. You want, you want your life to continue to change as he leads you and guides you. If this is you, if you want to see more of his glory in your life, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Thank you. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to take a couple minutes to worship. Jesus, God, show us your glory. Show us your glory. No words I have can match that prayer that Moses prayed. Because God, only you know what each and every one of us need, how we need you to guide us, how we need you to lead us. Only you know the glory you want to show us. Only you know the goodness, the infinite goodness and mercy you want to show us. thank you that you meet us and lead us 
and guide us. I thank you that you are glorious. And because of that, we are secure. God, I pray for anyone tonight who is wanting more of you, whether for the first time or just wanting more of you for the gazillionth time. Meet every single one of us in here tonight. Meet us where we are. God, for those who want to start that journey or continue the journey, please step into our lives and change everything. Show us your glory in the way that only you can do. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So we're just going to take a minute, and I just want to encourage you to talk to God. Talk to him. He's big enough and glorious enough to handle it all.